For over 5,000 years of documented history, people have been using the cannabis plant as medicine. From ancient Chinese medical journals to the modern-day dispensaries, cannabis and its many medical uses have found their way to every continent on Earth. Today, as the prohibition against this plant is slowly being lifted around the world and our technological capacity grows exponentially, we finally have the opportunity to discover what this plant is truly capable of. Please join me, Matthew Myro, as I speak with the remarkable innovators working at the cutting edge of these discoveries. This is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine. This episode is brought to you by MJ.com and their brand new medical platform that they're rolling out in the San Francisco Bay Area. Have you visited MJ.com? MJ.com is the most trusted information source for all things cannabis. Whether you're a medical marijuana patient looking to find the right doctor or a consumer looking for exclusive savings at your favorite dispensary, MJ.com can bring you your favorite products right to your front door. Or maybe you're just a lover of the cannabis culture looking for the best original articles, interviews, podcasts, and educational information. MJ.com is the number one place to find everything you need. Visit MJ.com today. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome to another episode of the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. This is the place to go if you want to know more about cannabis as a medicine. Week after week, I bring you experts in the field, from clinicians to researchers to growers, whoever might be, as long as they're at the cutting edge of the cannabis industry, I'm going to be bringing their knowledge, their wisdom to you. And this week, we have Dr. Gene Tellyrand. Dr. Tellyrand is truly a veteran in the game. He's been in San Francisco since the late 90s and was one of the very first recommending physicians out in California when Prop 215 passed. And in this conversation, he takes us through the history of the movement and also some of the really cool things that he's up to with his dosing project, getting research done from how people are using the medicine and how effective it is, and also his deep dive into the endocannabinoid system research. It's an amazing episode. I learned a lot. You're going to learn a ton. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Gene Tellerand. I am Matthew Myro, and this is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. And today, we are joined by Dr. Gene Talleran, and very excited to have him on. He was an Eagle Scout growing up, and also a student athlete. Dr. Talleran completed his Bachelor of Arts degree from Brown University, and received his MD from Boston University School of Medicine. Then he moved across the country to San Francisco to complete his residency program and focus on complementary and alternative medicines. Dr. Talleyrand has over 20 years of experience as a medical doctor, and in 2004, he founded Medican, a management service organization dedicated to physician education and patient referrals for medical cannabis evaluations. It has since provided evaluations for over 280,000 patients throughout California. That's, that's an amazing number. And continuing his strong advocacy for medical cannabis, Dr. Talleyrand, along with Dr. John Abrams, founded the nonprofit research organization, the Clinical Endocannabinoid System Consortium. Dr. Talleyrand, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great, great, great. So normally I would start off asking my guests about how they got really interested in cannabis medicine, but you had a more interesting story that I wanted to start with before that. And could you tell me more about your experience in Zimbabwe? Oh, uh, let's see. Well, I was a uh, senior in college and in Rhode Island and had a good friend from Zimbabwe. And uh, I'd been following the path of medicine. My grandfather's a doctor. My father's a doctor. And uh, as you might know, when you have uh, uh, parents ahead of you that are in a profession and you're heading down the profession, sometimes you take the road without really thinking about it. So finally hit me as I'm graduating college that I didn't really know why I was going into medicine. I, I'd done pre, pre-med for years. So I was chatting, talking with my friend about graduating and 
not knowing what, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And he suggested I go to his uh, home country. He said, it will open your eyes. There are many uh, who lack uh, good teachers there. There are lots of students without uh, good teachers. And I'm sure you could get uh, a job as a teacher or, or at least just enjoy the country. So I went. Uh, his brother picked me up from the airport. I went with another friend, actually. So uh, we had some um, camaraderie there as well. And it was definitely eye-opening. For sure, we traveled the country, tried to get jobs, actually got jobs as teachers in a government school, although we needed the government approval and, and they wouldn't approve. So the kids went without without a teacher uh, so it was, it was a, definitely an interesting beautiful country you know uh, uh victoria falls this amazing town around surrounding it and you know understanding tribalism and and uh you know different groups of people getting along or not and at the time you know there were uh students in, in the university protesting the uh, government and the government was responding with guns. <laughs> so it was definitely eye-opening. But personally, what I, what I learned from the experience is that uh, being a physician could be of great use. Uh, I could really affect people. So it was more than just being a good scientist. It was a uh, social, political endeavor as well. And I should have realized that, you know, I, I remember growing up as a kid, real young, visiting my grandfather in Haiti. That, that's where we're from. And he had retired, but still there'd be people coming to his house going, is Dr. Talleyrand there? Is Dr. Talleyrand there? Really got to talk to him. And, I said, wow, my, my grandpa's a rock star. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's just this old man before, but yeah, I really realized that he touched people's lives to the point where they're still looking for him after he retired. I grew up having dinner conversations uh, about science and autopsies. My dad's a pathologist, so dealt a lot with the death and, and disease. And, you know, that was normal conversation. But um, so it, it ran to the breadth of, of science and social influence and politics. And so that's really what I, I realized. And I thought, wow, this is, this is a great choice, even though I hadn't really thought about it before, just following a path. Beautiful. And I imagine that also led you to finding these alternative ways of healing and not not confining yourself to the strictures of, of what maybe med school taught you and what you were supposed to supposed to be doing all the time. Yeah, uh, San Francisco, as well as being open to the idea that we don't know everything. There are many ways to skin a cat. There's many ways to heal. And, you know, pharmaceuticals or surgeries may be good, but so and but there are uh, there's centuries of evidence of of even it's it's trial and error of of evidence of uh, other types of healing from traditional Chinese medicine and herbalism, Reiki and Ayurveda. There's a, a lot that you could apply, and really what we're doing is dealing with people, not really looking at science. I mean. That's what we should, or that's what the way I look at medicine is it's about the people, you know, their culture, um, what works for them rather than what we dictate should work for them. And so that's um, that definitely San Francisco is a great place to to experience that. There's a lot of different cultures in San Francisco. And so. Yeah, I've, I've heard it said that San Francisco is the place where new ideas are met with the least resistance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I agree. I agree. Definitely. Uh, my dad says the, those crazies. That's what he calls it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a little bit more traditional, but uh, I, I, I love it. I love it because uh, it definitely keeps you on your toes. You got to use your brain. You, you got to think about it and think about what you're doing and, and maybe what you thought wasn't really the right way. Uh, so 
it, it's interesting. Yeah, great. So how did you end up moving into the medical cannabis space? Uh, in, in residency, so, uh, you know, my mentor in, in residency, Dr. Drazen, Dr. Jeff Drazen, he opened my eyes to alternative uh, methods of healing, alternative traditions of healing. So I was really primed for it. And the Compassionate Use Act was passed in California in 1996. The Compassionate Use Act, or Proposition 215, was was the what started the whole medical cannabis movement. I mean, there, there was a lot before that, uh, but really it, it kicked it off where legally the voters of California were allowing people to use cannabis for medical conditions. Uh, it also got kicked off with the AIDS epidemic. You know, that was really about 10 years old at the time or older, and so... Uh, there was a lot of death with the AIDS epidemic and, and included in uh, the dying was some compassion for those who were finding benefit, you know, anti-anxiety effects, uh, the ability to tolerate your prescription medicines, the ability to get to sleep from cannabis. And so, you know, that all culminated in the Compassionate Use Act in 96. Uh, I was just finishing residency in 98. When I first heard about cannabis as medicine, I laughed. I said, oh, yeah, that's funny. That's, uh, <laughs> but diving into it, getting patients coming to me and saying, I'd like to use this, what finally tipped me over was when a patient came to me and handed me his opiates. And you could tell that at that time that opiates were becoming problematic. You know, people were abusing him uh, handed them to me and said, I don't need these anymore, which you, you never saw. You never saw people just usually were asked, we're doing the opposites. I need more. I need more. Uh, and so that's what you had to deal with. But having a patient come to you and say, I don't need these here. Here, take these, throw them away. I, I'd rather use cannabis to help with my pain. That just tipped me over the edge. And then I started reading. Uh, about it, seeing what sort of evidence there was for it and or the lack of evidence and understanding also this, the social movement around it. Now, I understand for those first few years, first five, six years or so, it was a little dicey in California for physicians. They could lose their licenses and, and their DEA qualifications and all these things. And so watching that evolve, because you were right there in the thick of it as it started, when did you start to become more comfortable with the idea of actually recommending it? Not until 2000. Well, so I'm a resident at the hospital. At the hospital this is San Francisco General Hospital. I think it's now called Zuckerberg Hospital. But uh, San Francisco General is sort of the uh, community hospital and, and also well known for treating a lot of the AIDS uh, victims and a patient came to me with a form that the hospital provided him saying, uh, uh, if you can sign this for me, uh, I can use cannabis. And I said, sure. Didn't know much about it, uh, except that pretty comfortable with the fact that it was going to be harm reduction, you know, in regards to using cannabis instead of opiates. And so um, but that was just one incident here. Maybe maybe twice I did that. Not really, and I sort of didn't think about it much. Although I started looking into the science behind it, and it really wasn't until 2004 where, because previously doctors were being investigated by the DEA, uh, and so the doctors that were willing to do it, my predecessors, uh, Dr. Todd McCurria, Dr. Jeff Hergen, rather, and, and the most famous Dr. Conant, Conant uh, he was an AIDS doctor, and he and a bunch of patients filed the suit against the government, the Department of Justice, the EA, because they felt they had the right, they had the Fifth Amendment right to discuss cannabis as possible treatment, even though it was a Schedule One, it is a Schedule One substance and not believed to have any medical benefit. They felt that it was their right to discuss it and that 
it was in the best interest of the doctor-patient relationship to have that as an open discussion rather than let's not talk about it while I prescribe you other medicines and you're quietly doing this on the side. So that seems a dangerous path to take. Where to take the discussion? You mean? No, the the just I can only talk about this narrow aspect of things, and you try all these things on the side. That seems antithetical to the do no harm because you want to help the patient as much as possible. You're exactly. Well, the, you know the courts agreed with you. They, they uh, you know, Doctor Conant and one his student, the Department of Justice and the government tried to appeal the decision and lost. Uh, and they, then they tried to bring it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, we don't want to hear about it. This is a good decision. Uh, and in 2004, they had to drop their their prosecution of doctors, their uh, persecution of doctors. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, began, that's when I started Medicaid, right? After that decision, I felt, okay, uh, we're open now. We can we can do this. We can begin to openly evaluate. Before there were these secret clandestine clinics, I call them, where it'd be on a Saturday uh, and in a quiet place outside of your office where a doctor might see a few patients. It really was sort of <laughs> uh, like prohibition, you know, speakeasies, but instead these were medical visits. <laughs> but then, you know, after that decision, it really opened it up. We started Medicaid and boom, patients came flooding. They really... Um, they really had been using cannabis behind our backs, and, and now it was out in the open. We could talk about the positive effects, the adverse effects, um, and they uh, could, you know, at first they were tentative, but after a while they were able to reveal a lot, uh, and, and thus started the, the movement. At the same time, uh, well, maybe, maybe a few years earlier, Dr. Machulam was just discovering, Dr. Merchulin was the Israeli biochemist who had been studying THC for quite a long time, was just discovering that we all had the system in our body, the endocannabinoid system, was eventually called where there were these internal molecules, endocannabinoids, similar to THC, attaching to receptors and uh, and affecting the body. So um, history and science were finally coming together and revealing a lot uh, and uh, making us understand why patients all these years were really getting going back to cannabis. So it's really an interesting, you know, goes back to the point, listen to the patient. You know, they, they sometimes know the truth more than, than our scientific process. What a powerful moment, the, the convergence of the history and the politics and the medicine and the science and it all seemed to flower at that same time in, in San Francisco. Yeah, which is yeah, really, really cool. Very cool, very cool. Um, I'm awesome to be part of it. Uh, sort of stumbled on it in some way, but uh, if you look back at my history, it was all, I was almost uh, preparing for it all along without knowing it. <laughs> seems to be the case when we look back at how we got to where we are generally. So also, I don't know if I shared this with you ever, but I, of those 280,000 plus patients, I was one of them. And oh. In, in, <laughs> did uh, we see each other? Uh, with, pardon me? Did we see each other? We, we did not see each other. Oh. No, <laughs> no, we didn't. It was one of your other physicians, but it was in late 2004 that we did. It was a, a teleconference. So, okay, yeah. yeah, and I had just moved to San Francisco a little prior, so it was kind of eye-opening for me, all the whole process <laughs> and being able to go through everything and finally finding something, because I knew that cannabis, where I had uh, irritable bowel syndrome, mm. and I knew that cannabis was the only thing that ever settled it down, like none of the over-counter medications or anything like that. The doctors always told me there's nothing I could really do, and cannabis always seemed to settle my stomach down, and so... It was great to finally be in a state where I could be prescribed, uh, prescribed, recommended it for its use. Good. good. Thanks for the correction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for, for supporting and creating the organization so that I could have that possibility. That, yeah. Yeah. Your story was very common. And uh, cannabis and the endocannabinoid system is very much involved in the gut uh, and uh, seems to be pretty effective 
relaxing or slowing the gut's motility. So definitely uh, a potential um, treatment or or symptom. It, it cure, you know, it can help with the symptoms potentially uh, down the road. Uh, well, it's helping them right now. We just need to understand more about it, how how much, you know, uh, long-term effects, etc. But it's very uh, interesting. Actually, there is a proposed idea behind uh, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, where there may be a um, genetic pre- lack predisposition or lack of endocannabinoids that may be causing the symptoms and uh, and what you might be happening is you're replacing your your endocannabinoids with the plants cannabinoids phytocannabinoids that's just an idea it's not been proven or it's, it's but it's been published as an idea hypothesis wow that's really interesting so from what i understand one of the main functions of the endocannabinoid system is uh, creating homeostasis within the body so is the idea that we have to have a certain amount of these receptors in order to be able to achieve that homeostasis? Or is it more about the endogenous creation of these cannabinoids to interact with the receptors? I guess people call it homeostasis um, more because it brings what may go off track back on track. And uh, the endocannabinoid system it affects your nerves and it flex, affects your inflammatory cells. So it's neuroinflammatory. And the receptors are really in every organ of our body. So that's why we look at it as a homeostatic system, because from head to toe, it will regulate, modulate what may be going off track. And how does it do that? Well, Matt, to think about an engine going regularly, you know, the, the, the uh, endocannabinoids are being produced. They're attaching to the receptors. The receptors are signaling downstream. There's a feedback mechanism that says, okay, we've got enough signals cut back. And it sort of goes in that cycle where you're triggering and then not triggering and triggering and not triggering. And that's sort of the cycle of the engine. If you add something to the engine, like a THC, it'll rev up the system. Um, or if you add CBD, it might act like the oil to the engine and keep everything smoothly going. Um, yes, it's, it's a system of receptors. Receptors will upregulate, so there'll be more if there's not enough fuel for, for them. Or they will downregulate if there's too much fuel. So there's sort of this internal shutoff mechanism that's going on. Uh, so I like to look at it like an engine uh, in, in terms of how we might affect it. We still don't have the uh, tachometer. You know, that we, we don't have a way of measuring your endocannabinoid tone quite yet. We're pretty certain there's a tone that should be measured. And so some of the work that we're doing at the research with the research consortium is, is, uh, is uh, developing uh, studies to, to identify the tone. Well, let's, let's transition right into there. I'd like to hear more about the consortium and, and how you discovered the actual need for it. Uh, well, you know, it was obvious. You look at the, the studies out there, and because of prohibition, scientists couldn't take cannabis and and do clinical trials with it. There were a lot of preclinical trials. There were a lot of synthetic cannabinoids made. That didn't stop science. When, uh, when um, cannabis was with the Controlled Substances Act and the whole idea of scheduling drugs and then putting cannabis as a Schedule One with no medical benefit, it was very difficult to acquire cannabis for study you had to fill out forms and if your study wasn't about how it was damaging folks then it then the, then it wasn't approved there was a source of cannabis there is a source of cannabis that came out of 
Tennessee, but uh, it wasn't really what was found in the streets. It was less potent, uh, had, uh, you know, was grown by the governments. And so it was very different if it was found um, on the streets. And so that was what was studied often. So that didn't correlate with what we were seeing out there. So we saw the need, you know, once prohibition started relaxing, we really saw the need for a lot of clinical study, we were behind on understanding what, how cannabis or the phytocannabinoids, the THC and CBD were affecting the endocannabinoid system. So about five years ago, uh, after having seen patients for almost 10 years, I ran into a, uh, a colleague or a friend through mutual friends, uh, Dr. John Abrams. He uh, had been in uh, research for all his career. He'd been involved in discoveries of antibodies, uh, using antibodies as medicine. Uh, and, and now we call that biosimilars. There are huge companies like Genentech that are built around biosimilars. It's one of the more exciting branches of medicine. Well, Dr. Abrams, John had been, he had been uh, instrumental in starting in understanding monoclonal antibodies back in the 80s and, um, and developing medicines around. Would you mind to give a brief description of what antibodies are? Uh, sure. Antibodies are... Uh, or proteins that uh, your cells produce, uh, particularly your blood cells or inflammatory cells, uh, and those antibodies help with our immune our immunity. They will attach to foreign compounds as they'll send signals uh, that are involved in the allergic reaction. Um, they're involved in vaccinations. When you are vaccinated, you're basically forming new antibodies against the uh, disease. And, and that's how we prevent uh, disease. So antibodies are very interesting. Well, the, the, uh, you know, that's, they've, you know that, that's a natural process of the body. Using them, creating them out of cells and using them as medicine. So they would take different animal cells, mouse cells, and in, in a dish and put the offending element in there and have the cells produce an antibody for it. And then, then you had that antibody and you could use it as medicine or you could create the antibody, attach a particular drug to it and send that in, and, and, and administer that, get, uh, eat it or inject it. And, and that medicine would, would target a certain area of your body because the antibody was designed to target the area. And so they would concentrate the medicine in a certain place. Um, there's cancer treatment that uses this, uh, treatments for things like ulcerative colitis or rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, if you ever see a medicine advertised on TV with the, and the last two letters are AB, there's the generic name underneath the, and the last two letters are AB, that's, the, that's an antibody-based medicine. So it's one way to sort of decipher those cryptic pharmaceutical ads on television. Uh, yeah, so that's, you know, so that, that's where John sort of had cut his teeth and made his fame. And he had an affinity for cannabis and had, had been looking at cannabis to study for quite a while. And he saw with the changes in law that, that um, there's more potential for it. And he also thought, wow, this is just like back in the days when we were discovering antibodies and medicine for antibodies. It's a whole new field. And um, I saw how that process went. And I really think the endocannabinoid system and cannabinoids are going to go in a similar way of discovery. So he was able to have walked the road. He walked the road already with the different treatments. And, and, and so he really uh, was almost able to predict what would happen next. So great partner to have, you know. I rely on him all the time. And what's going to happen next? With you know, not complete sight, but it really uh, understands what the process is. As I get nervous or worried, or this is taking too long, and you know, we've got people suffering out there, and we're still. He's like, it's coming, it's coming. Just be patient. And so we've been at it for about five years. The first, you know, we've just been 
observing folks, documenting their use, the dosage. It just seems to be turning the corner now where we're able to get a little deeper and, uh, and, uh, and do some of these ideas uh, that we've been um, having for the last four or five years. Uh, so I'm excited about that. I know you had mentioned that one of the things that you've been looking at is how the effects of smoking and how it's affecting the heart and all that. Could you dive into that a little? Sure. I mean, we, you know, when we look at cannabis medicines out there, there's a lot of work to do in formulation development, meaning that the, the, uh, the medicines are all over the place. From batch to batch, they change. You know, the plant is variable. The plant has so many potential active ingredients. It's not just about THC and CBD. And so it's really this black box of, of medicine that we, that's, we don't know what's going on. Well, it's going to take some time to sort it all out. Uh, so our first idea was, number one, let's look under the light. Uh, let's look to see what people are doing predominantly. Right now, most people in California, anyway, are smoking the flower. And so let's see why they're from smoking the flower, uh, how much they're smoking, what's negative about it, and what's positive about it. So that's where we started, you know, waiting for more um, regulated medicines to, uh, based on cannabis to come down the pike. And so we, we've been looking at the doses of smoked flour for sleep and for uh, pain um, as two of the more popular reasons why people seek a cannabis recommendation. We basically sampled the population, sort of crowdsourced, used the Internet and uh, had them report their weights, uh, estimated their dosage, and were able to come up with a statistically significant dosage used by people for that alleviates pain and improves their sleep. Really interesting. That was sort of a proof of concept that yeah, we can do this. Now we're diving a little deeper, getting the actual statistics, getting the analysis of the plant before they use it so that we can get more clear on what dosage is effective really uh, for people. So that's one of the things we're looking at. It turned- Are you using uh, specific plant cultivars as part of it as well? Well, you know, when we started the dosing project, the state had not yet mandated uh, that all flour be tested before it was sold. But now it all has to be tested. So we can look at, yet yeah, specific cultivars or cannabis varietals and know their fingerprint, what terpenes are in it. You know, terpenes are the uh, potentially active ingredients that also cause an aroma in the flower. Um, what cannabinoids are, are in, in there? Like I said, it's not just THC and CBD. There is a fingerprint of cannabinoids. We can know exactly what the chemistry of the flower that you have smoked is and then try to attach that to an effect. We're also looking at the patient's genetics because your individual genetics can influence whether you have a positive effect or a negative effect. We're a, we were able to, to uh, take EEGs, electroencephalogram, which is a brainwave tracing of a few uh, users, and to see if there was some indication, and we were able to see some. We just did it in a handful of folks at this point. But we're able to see that it can be predictive, you know, why, you know, why does this person react to this flower in a certain way while this person doesn't? And, and the EEG is a great biomarker of that reaction rather than somebody telling you, oh, I just kind of felt goofy or high. Or, uh, right now we can actually get a, a tracing, brainwave tracing, uh, to see the different effects of different wow. cultivars. That's, wow, that's very, very cool very stuff. Cool. <laughs> yeah, wow. wow, all the time. <laughs> and as and I mean, how many different cannabinoids are there in the plant? Do we have a specific count yet? Oh, seems to be growing all the time. There was a new cannabinoid discovered in a particular varietal just oh, a month wow. or so ago. <laughs> uh, uh, 
THCP, I don't know, P is in Paul, I don't know if you've heard of it, but usually THC has a five carbon or alkyl chain uh, attached to it. We've known about THCV, which has only a three carbon, and that one seems to affect uh, uh, diabetes, reduce your blood sugar, and it doesn't have a psychoactive effect, while THC does, of course. And then there is THCP that has a seven carbon chain. So three, five is the THC and seven is the bigger one. That one seems to be more potent than THC, almost 30 times more potent. So that was just recently discovered. Probably over 100 different cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids from plants that we know about so far. So, yeah, there's a lot of sorting out to do. A lot. And yeah. and very little access to the proper research and to be able to do it, it seems. Yeah, yeah, that's where we're needing, you know, people to really buy into the fact that we're behind. We've been behind for a while due to prohibition. And now that prohibition is at least coming down a little bit. Then we have opportunities now to to really dive into this and get some answers and potentially save lives. Literally, it's not being dramatic. (laughs) You know, uh, there are signs that cannabinoids are slowing uh, cancer cell growth and the metastasis, you know, the the movement of cancer cells from one part of the body to the next. So there's a lot of potential here that we really... uh, have an opportunity to dive into. Yeah, I think I think I saw a study out of Harvard that was looking at the cancer cells being able to actually shrink. Yes, yes, uh, uh, potentially out of Harvard. Actually, most of the work has been done internationally. Israel, uh, uh, Spain, uh, Italy are really big centers for the anti-cancer effect. But uh, it's coming to the United States, like I said, as as a as the uh, as prohibition gets gets less and less so maybe you can help clear this up for me with with the rescheduling of hemp which mm-hmm. is really wild because it's we all know it's the same plants but <laughs> <laughs> the rescheduling of hemp going all the way down to a schedule 5 and so it seems to me that the cutoff is the THC and so yes. if, as long as there's no THC or under 0.3% THC, it's classified as hemp. And does that right. mean that you're still able to study the full expression of other cannabinoids underneath this new farm bill? Is that going to open up more doorways for research? Well, hemp has an is- interesting history. Uh, hemp is an interesting word, too. You know, the, like you said, it's cannabis sativa. That's the botanical name for the plant. The plant com- looks very differently all cannabis sativa but looks differently it can look like a a fibrous tall thin plant uh, with not many leaves or it can be a very bushy plant uh, with very thick broad leaves both plants produce flowers the female it's uh, it it can be produced as a female or a male plant um, and it can produce flowers it both and the plant also comes in in regards to the cannabinoids. Uh, it comes in two different types. Well, actually, three different types because THC and CBD come from the same genetic allele, from the same genetic position. Um, and just like a carnation might be be red, or a carnation might be white, or there are certain blends, codominant blends, where carnation is pink. Cannabis is similar. A, a plant can be high THC with not very much CBD, or it can be the opposite. It could be high CBD with not very much THC. That would be what you would call hemp, quote unquote. But hemp traditionally also was more grown at for its fiber. Uh, doesn't mean that all hemp, all low, all high CBD, low THC has to be that fibrous type. You can get a flower type, high CBD, low THC plant. Okay, we had to take a brief break from a unwanted fire alarm, but 
you're discussing the possibilities for the different expressions of this plant, of this cannabis sativa plant, and, and some high CBD, some low THC. There are really three different types. Uh, by if you're looking strictly at the chemistry. Now, in each of these types, there could be a bushy, flowery plant or thin, fibrous plant. So it could be that, so hemp is a strange word because everybody thinks hemp, fibrous, thin, but I, I, we like to say, is it flower type or is it fiber type as a question? And the next question is, is it high THC, low CBD, or high CBD, low THC? or roughly equivalent one-to-one. Um, and those are the two ways we'll organize the different plants out there. Well, the government doesn't really think scientifically always or consult the scientists when they create the, their uh, nomenclature or, or when they categorize the plants. And in their minds, it's strictly, does it have THC or does it not? And so they called hemp everything that does not or has a very low amount of THC. It could be flowering, it could be fibrous, as long as it doesn't have uh, THC. Now, what that opened up is the ability for people to grow hemp that looked exactly like high THC flowers and you know, uh, extract the oil from, from the uh, high CBD flowers to create um, a um, high CBD oil, um, which has become really popular, uh, and now with the reduction in pro with the uh, a reduction in prohibition with the new hemp laws, uh, there's the ability to grow a, a lot of uh, hot flowering CBD plants that can be used as medicine. In fact, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, former Surgeon General, really made uh, CBD oil popular as he exposed the effects of it with a uh, little girl using it for uh, seizures. It's funny, I, you know, I've been following a girl since, a uh, little girl since 2009. Same, same thing. Uh, very interesting. But my issue with with the high CBD um, oil is that it changed from batch to batch. There are other active ingredients, right? The different terpenoids in there. And uh, so sometimes it would work for her and sometimes it wouldn't. We'd scratch her head and what's different? And, and uh, how can we get this to be more consistent? And so, you know, there's a lot of work to do in, in getting this medicine right. First, finding out what that magic formula is. It's not just CBD or it's not just THC. There are other chemicals in it and then making it batch to batch consistency. Once that happens, then we can finally study it and make do clinical research. But there's a lot of work to do just to get it regulated from batch to batch. Speaking to different friends and things like that, I'm hearing that CBG is the new hot cannabinoid and I've done a little digging into it myself, but do you have any experience with it or, or know of any uses for it at this point? Well, as more people discover, go beyond THC and CBD, they will stumble onto the other hundred cannabinoids. CBG is a very interesting one because it's shown in preclinical, so in, in animal tests and, and cell tests, uh, that it has some anti-inflammatory effect. CBG is also interesting to the cultivator because it's the precursor to, to THC and CBD. So as the plant matures, it first forms CBG, and then... It has an enzyme that either produces THC or that enzyme produces CBD. So plants harvested early enough can have mostly CBG in there. So it means that you don't have to hunt for a specific type and a specific genetics to grow. Most of your plants out there, if you just harvest it correctly, um, will produce CBG which makes it a very popular next cannabinoid to look at. Uh, oh, absolutely. Like I said, over 100, that we're just scratching at the surface, right? 
I imagine, especially for for the cultivators, if you have something that you can start uh, harvesting at, at five or six weeks as opposed to eight or nine weeks, then that provides a lot of opportunity for everybody, not just yeah. not, not not just the doctors and the patients, but also the <laughs> growers involved. That's right. Wow. Yeah. And so you're actually creating a manual for physicians to be able to have a grasp on this? Right. I've been, you know, I've been observing patients now for uh, over 15 years. And I realized that even though there are, there's not enough clinical study, there's at least my observations that I can summarize and put into a, a book so that, you know, more and more people are, are using cannabis and cannabinoids from the plants and even if you're not a specialist in understanding the endocannabinoid system, it's good to know what's going on uh, because likely soon some of your patients will be using cannabis. And rather than not know what to do or not know what to look for, I think it's really important that the doctors um, are able to at least become um, good guides in, in the use of cannabis um, and good observers for, uh, you know, looking for adverse events, uh, as well as the positive effects uh, of cannabis. So, yeah, well, I'm writing a manual for physicians so that they uh, can benefit from my years of uh, observing patients. Uh, that will be a tremendous resource because I know that there's a great dearth of information out there for physicians, and many of them want to be good at what they're doing. They want to be a great doctor and help their patient, but there's, it's hard to know how to. Right, right. There's also a culture there that, that, you know, patient comes to you and says, yeah, well, I'm using shatter. You know, most physicians are like, what's that? You know, well, there's the lingo behind it that, you know, that they call different concentrates of the, of the flower uh, different names. And so no understanding that uh, so that you can have a conversation with your patient is, is uh, important too. So yeah, the book's going to address everything from the culture of cannabis to the science behind the endocannabinoids. So it really seems like we're at just the starting line yeah. of all of this, of being able to understand the cannabinoids, how they're put together, and all the different uses for it. Where do you see not only your role moving forward with this, but the medicine in general, how do you see it moving forward? Right, right. Well, personally, I love seeing patients. I mean, that's why I got into medicine for the people. and uh, I'll continue to do that uh, as long as I can. And then I'm also involved in research, which I didn't expect to be, but it's been kind of interesting, exciting. And, and so that's where... We go, but what, where is everything going to go? I, I believe in the future we'll be using cannabinoids regularly in medicine. We'll be using it um, for uh, post-traumatic uh, brain, brain injury victims. Uh, we'll be using it in, even potentially in high-risk delivery to prevent uh, hepat uh, to, to prevent the encephalopathy of some traumatic births. And say uh, so, it's going to have a wide range of potential uh, applications. Uh, you don't have to get high from cannabis. Uh, that's you know that's one of the myths we have to we have to, that there out of all the potential hundreds of cannabinoids in the plant, there's only one that seems to be giving that psychoactive high, and that's even not naturally produced. You need to convert. THCA, which is what the plant naturally produces, to THC in order to get the high. So um, THCA is potential medicine without give, uh, getting you high. So there, there's um, once we can get over that stigma of of oh you're just a stoner, then we can really dive into helping a lot of people. Like you know, how long is it going to take? Uh, you know. 20 years ago, I'd, I said, oh, maybe 20 years. And <laughs> at least another 20 years, if not more. <laughs> so understanding how slow science works and, and uh, you know, also still battling some cultural, political uh, barriers is really 
now slowing things down. But you know, it, it's it's like a stone going downhill or a snowball. You know, it's gonna roll and get faster and faster as as time goes on, and we'll get there. Great. Well, I have one last question for you. So, what if anything at all? If there's one change that you can see happen within the medical cannabis industry, just one change, what's the top of the list for you? Hmm. Well, uh, within the medical cannabis, you mean every, from everything from producing the the medicine to wow, I you know. I'd love to get you got we've got to start at the beginning. And if I if I was gonna say the biggest change that can happen now is that we use science instead of myth uh, and marketing to sell our products. <laughs> Let's really dive in and put effort in research and development, put effort in standardizing products so that we can actually uh, uh, study it rather than us having to, you know, to try to capture this variable thing that changes from batch to batch. I'd love to to get people to, to get more scientific about it and, um, and uh, not make claims unless they really put their their product to the test. Yeah, and uh, I know you're coming with authority on that because you've been <laughs> collecting a lot of that anecdotal evidence yeah. and those claims and. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, uh, oh my God, it's all over the place. I, you know, I don't know what's going on. And, uh, and, you know, we need to know what's going on. Yeah, it's, it was a, a good mix of the head and the heart for you. Your heart wants to have the information, but your head's still a scientist. It's like, why can't we get good data? Yeah. <laughs> You've heard me. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Tellyrand. It's really, it's been an honor to have you on. I know I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners are going to learn a ton from you as well. Thank you for Great. your time. Great. Happy to help. There you have it, folks. That was Dr. Tellyrand dropping all of that incredible information for you. He is a wonderful person, a true gem of a man, and I appreciate every time I have a chance to interact with him. I hope that you enjoyed this show, and thank you so much for listening. I am so appreciative of all of your ears and all of your curiosity. And if you are enjoying what you're hearing, please go over to iTunes or Apple and Stitcher or wherever it is that you may be consuming this podcast. And please, please leave a note give a review. Let me know what you think. By you letting me know what you think, it helps me get better ratings. It helps me get more of this information to more people, which I know is important to you as well. So thank you so much. And until next time, folks, please be well. This Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast is copyright EM2P2 Inc. 2020. All rights reserved. Podcast use and availability is governed by terms and disclaimers available at edgeofcannabismedicine.com forward slash terms. I'm your host, Matthew Myro, and thank you for listening.